I am your host, VS Coogan, and welcome to The Maverick On Air, where every month I introduce you to some of the most unique minds around the world who have chosen the path less traveled, challenge conventional wisdom, and are pushing the boundary of achievement. Join me on this journey as I try and unravel the secrets to their success to help inspire you to be all that you can be. My guest today is Dr. Nick Chatrath. He's a highly sought-after life and leadership coach who holds a Master Executive Coach accreditation and has more than 20 years and over 3,000 of one-to-one coaching experience to help maximize human potential. Nick's clients include a number of athletes, politicians, ambassadors, NGO leaders, and MBA students, to name a few. He was the founder and CEO of Coachify, an innovative company that provides insights and productivity combined with next-generation coaching techniques to drive higher output and performance. More recently, he is the managing director of Artisan, a leading consultancy in leadership and culture change. Nick is a husband, father, and has published two books, more recently The Best-Selling Musings on Leadership, and is currently writing his next book on AI and the art of human flourishing. Nick, welcome to the Maverick on Air. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, great to be here. You've got an impressive background, having graduated from Cambridge, working for McKinsey, and then you've gone on to pursue a master's and a PhD at Oxford. At what point did you take a keen interest in productivity and human potential? Yeah, I mean, uh, my background does look quite impressive to some, but actually, you know, and and having coached people uh, from different walks of life, I think one of my main learnings is that we're all human. Uh, We all have our insecurities. We're all good at some stuff and not good at other stuff. So, I think actually one thing that took me into this field of productivity and human potential is this driving assumption that I have that every single human being can achieve great things. We are all special. We're all different. Uh, I can learn from absolutely any person on the planet. Um, And actually, that's something I keep learning. You know, I think uh, maybe if you talked to me 20 years ago, maybe I would have told you I'm a humble person. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll tell you that today, but I'll tell you, in the last few months and years, I've really learned, you know, people I've met, um, that I really can learn from every person. Um, and I think I got into it very early. I did a career in management consulting, and that is a very good background to be able to chat with leaders from the business world. Uh, you spend a lot of time with them, so you start to coach people naturally. But actually, as I cast my mind back over my life, I realized that I was interested in human potential even earlier. And I was journaling about this a couple of years ago and realized, actually, when I was aged 10 and I was in primary school, uh, my teachers would pulled me out of my class at one point and said, oh, could you just work with this nine-year-old? I didn't really know them very well and just sort of help them with their spelling a little bit. Uh, and I think the teacher was doing that to stretch me. And uh, I realized later that actually what I was doing was coaching this other person. And I realized that my approach naturally, and then going forward into university times and some experience I had there, my approach in helping other people is quite question-led rather than just giving them the answer as if I can deliver this wonderful magic dose of the the answer that will solve all of your problems. Um, So I've always taken a a question-led and coaching approach. And I think it's been there. It's in my DNA, really. It's part of what I was put on this planet to do. And regarding kind of teaching, if we talk about the current education system, you know, compared to some of the other kind of sectors and industries, it's been quite stagnant in terms of its approach from primary school to secondary to university. What's your thoughts on the current education system? Do you think that the way that 
kind of kids are taught these days puts them in the best position to succeed in life? Do you think there's certain elements that a school is missing out on teaching the fundamentals? I think there are parts of the education system that could be called stagnant, um, maybe in terms of their teaching approach. I also see a lot of signs of hope. I read about uh, some approaches in Holland where they were gathering smaller groups and allowing pupils to take much more of an active lead in what they wanted to learn. I'm chair of governors at Newmaston Primary School here in Oxford. And uh, one of the things I do periodically uh, is do a sort of a, a lesson walk where I'm sort of shown into different classrooms to see what's going on. And I'm not a trained teacher in that sense. And as I went in, I was mightily impressed at some of the approaches they're using because um, I have with colleagues of honed ways of getting adults and mainly in my context business executives to learn well and engage and be fired up about their own development and here I was seeing classroom teachers working with seven eight nine year olds and doing things that are similar and I learned a lot in terms of what they were doing Um, they had the, the pupils Um, essentially leading their learning in many ways. Um, In one classroom I visited, they were sitting in a circle and the teacher was inputting very little, actually, and I could see what was going on. They were meeting their lesson objectives. So I think the things that we're finding out about human attention spans, um, neuroscientific insights we're getting about where we get triggered and where we can get into more of a creative domain in our life and our learning, these are actually being put into practice in some schools. Um, so I think there are real signs of hope. Okay, now that um, definitely sounds promising. Now, you co-authored a book on leadership titled Musings on Leadership. It's definitely a unique read as it takes inspiration from people that the leadership world may not typically draw upon, like the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu and Viktor Frankl, to name a couple. Um, tell us how that book came about, and maybe you can share some of the concepts that I explored. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, the book came about through relationship and as quite a sort of logical person by default, this is another thing I'm learning that actually my life is more joyful, even more productive when I connect the tasks I'm seeking to do with relationships that are in my life. And uh, it came about as a result of me responding to rather than blocking offers from other people. And so I was working with Tor Messoy and Yan Lu and others Um, who are colleagues of theirs in another leadership firm called Agnes Consulting over in Hong Kong mainly, but they serve clients globally. And they're a wonderful group of people. And we've been working together uh, over a period of years. And uh, it was their idea to get the book going. And they invited me into the project. And there were several authors in the end. So it it was sort of relationally led. And we were all allowed to contribute what was closest to our heart uh, at that time. So I wrote a chapter on time management, or as I like to call it, time mastery. I just feel it makes it sound a bit better. Um, and then the other one I wrote was around celebrating success. Um, often we we rush by in our lives. And I mean, at, at the moment of lockdown and pandemic that we have right now as we're recording this, um, often it can be difficult to think, what is there to celebrate? Um, but there are things to celebrate. And even when life is going well, we often just rush on by those moments rather than savouring here and now. So, so I wrote a chapter about that as well. One of the concepts that's explored in the book is kind of the notion of control and how kind of there's a misconception that great leaders must be micromanagers and not lose that control. I mean, could you maybe share your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think you, know, it's, you hear things at both ends of the spectrum. So some people say you can't control anything that happens in life. Just 
you know, flow through life, respond well, um, you know, and they would cite something like the pandemic as an example of that. We're, we're not in charge would be one way that people would phrase it. At the other end of the spectrum, you have people saying, take control, you can make, make it happen. If you visualize it enough, you know, the universe will essentially accede to your wishes. And so you've got these two, and, and I resist going too far down either end of the spectrum. I mean, for those who believe in God and would say, well, God is in charge, or would think other forces are in charge, we're not in charge. I would say, well, that's true to an extent, but we also have agency. And personally, as a believer in the divine myself, I, I believe that, yes, God exists, and God has given me meaningful agency. You know, I didn't choose to be born, but I have real choices that I can make. And also, I try to avoid the hubris that says, yeah, but I can just... Uh, control my own destiny entirely. Just to give you an example of that, I mean, when I was growing up, um, my favourite subject at school and the one I was best at and eventually went on to uh, study at university was maths. And I loved maths. I still love maths today. So I was doing very well at maths. And I built it up in my mind as a as a haven, actually, a haven, a safe place that I would retreat to that when life was maybe a bit more challenging for me, I would think, ah, oh, but it's okay. I'm the best at maths. And no one's better than me. And it became just this area in which I felt I could control the world. And I was, I was the best. Um, well, then I got to university to study maths, Cambridge University, and realized, hang on, I'm in the middle of the pack here at best, unless I pull my finger out. So, and I built up many havens in my life, you know, in my mind, um, which one by one get destroyed when you realize, actually, there are a whole load of other talented people out there who could um, steal my entrepreneurial idea or not steal it, but just get there faster. Um, yeah, so so I think we need to hold those two things in a dialectical tension, those two ends of the spectrum, and then we flourish more. It's a healthier place to be. Mm, that's interesting. I'm personally a big fan of kind of Stoic philosophy, and one of the key or the fundamentals, the pillars of that is you know control what you can control and let go of what you can't, right? And I think, as you say, some of the big problems that we see in life, it's because we try and control everything. Do you see that in business as well, where people get into business and they want to control everything, and they very quickly realize that there's only so much that you can control and there's so many different factors in play like timing and the market, the economy, for example. I think I see quite a healthy pragmatism generally in business. I mean, obviously, the spectrum of human experience and philosophies are reflected there. I think where the problems emerge that, that I see are more that in a natural human drivenness to be accepted or to achieve, I see that many of us can get swept along by that and become over busy. We're seeing it a lot today, but in a sense, it's, it's always been thus. I suppose the difference right now is as many people are working you know, from home or, or not working from home, trying to work from home while in a pandemic and trying to juggle childcare and <laughs> with safe social distancing, um, is that they've got fewer fire breaks right now. Uh, before you could maybe have the journey to work or the journey to an airport, even if you had an incredibly busy business life. Whereas now there's just fewer of those kind of safer spaces for you. But what I'm seeing now, as was the case before, is is this overwork and less time to uh, settle into what matters most and um, not just ask, what can I achieve in life? But maybe ask the bolder, more interesting question, what does my life want to do with me? Uh, or in the words of Frederick Buchner, um, 
you know, what is my vocation, which he defined as the place where my deep gladness meets the world's deep need. And in this drive to be productive all the time and only to be productive, I think we fail to say, well, what really brings me joy? And what does my neighbour need? It's definitely an interesting topic and I think kind of borders on the edge of spirituality in some sense as well, in terms of looking for signs, uh, I guess, in life that will make maybe nudge you along a different path, right? Um, I think if you have that blinkers on, maybe you might miss certain opportunities. Do you think that's the case? Sometimes we just run at 100 miles per hour and like a hamster will just keep going around but not getting anywhere. I, I agree. And actually, you've caught me at an interesting time because with my wife and family, I uh, had a three-month sabbatical earlier this year. And it was a beautiful time. I took the, the good decision uh, for once not to work. And so we, um, we had time of uh, stillness and reflection. And uh, we did a lot of skiing. We were in America in the Rockies. And as I reflected, I realized that actually I uh, have been not prioritizing, if you like, um, the, exactly those sorts of things that you were saying. Um, so yeah, it's, it's sort of been a reflective time for me because I've realized that if I'm honest, you know, I've read a lot of books during my life. When I've read some books which have a perspective which is different to mine, um, in all honesty, sometimes when I've read those books, I have opened the book already knowing what I believed and not really open to whatever the author was about to say. And I've skim read the book purely for loopholes and logical fallacies demonstrated by the author so that I could merely underline the belief that I already held before I opened the book. I wasn't really open to this person. And you talk about our beliefs being nudged and changed. I think that's the case for all of us. And I, I think there's nobody on the planet from whom I cannot learn something about how to be and how to live. Um, and so that for me has actually been quite a, uh, an aha moment, uh, whereas I've gone back over a lot of what I've thought before. And think how, how, to what extent did I really engage with that other point of view that I felt maybe threatening or different to my own? Let's talk a bit about another area of your expertise and experience, the good old topic of time management and productivity. Um, you know, we all have 24 hours in a day, but it seems like some of us are far more capable of utilising the time they have and maybe as a result end up achieving more in, in some cases. Um, what have you seen to be the biggest mistakes people make when it comes to kind of managing their day-to-day -day lives? Well, one mistake is, I mean, we all have a, a long list I mean, you asked the question in terms of day-to-day -day lives. Obviously, that, that brings it into a bigger orbit. I mean, if we think about the, for example, working lives and tasks that you need to get done, often we have a long list, and it may be uh, a, a note on your phone. It may be your email inbox might be your long list. Some people stick uh, post-it notes to the side of their laptop screen. Maybe it's a spreadsheet. We've all got our long lists. And one mistake people make is when they've got some time opening up and they want there's something they want to use it productively is that they look at their long list and they you know stroke their chin and think hmm and they cherry pick two or three items off that long list and what tends to happen is that you pick whatever is easiest or quickest or gives you some form of adrenaline rush to complete and you do those items rather than what is important or what connects with what matters most for you in these moments so not having a good approach to planning your time is, I think, one of the biggest mistakes. Because if you plan your time well, you can decide uh, what to do in the 90 minutes of your day when you're at your most productive, which for most people is something like early to mid-morning, just in terms of our physiology. So that's one mistake. I think another one is um, people don't realize that 
the energy they have is absolutely fundamental to productivity. So what I can achieve in one hour when I am at my most physically rested and emotionally positive and mentally focused uh, is orders of magnitude bigger than what I can achieve if, say, I'm trying to do a cognitive task for one hour. And before that one hour, I've been on my emails for two hours, preceded by a, a very crunchy strategic meeting, also cognitive for two hours with no breaks. And I haven't really moved. You know, the, the productivity is totally different. It's night and day. I'll make fewer mistakes I'll have to undo later. So it's about doing the most important thing first and, and putting in good recovery times in between your blocks of work as well. Kind of brings me back to a, a memory in my early years when I used to work in a city where there would be a, an individual who would kind of work the the standard hours, you know, nine to five, come in at nine o'clock on the dot, leave at five o'clock, and there would be others who would get in at 7 a.m. and leave at 7 p.m. And the person that came in at nine and left at five was the best performing person in the company. And I remember being absolutely just confused, you know, growing up, I always thought, to be the best, to be the most successful, to be the most productive, you need to put in the most hours. But as I've got more kind of older and, and seen more, I've come to realize that's not the case. And maybe you can help explain why that is. Yeah, well, I think one part of this is that we've lived with this myth for a long time that you know, as from the Industrial Revolution onwards, um, we, we have had greater productivity. And you look at machines, you look at computers and how they operate. And there have been, well, a couple of myths we live under. One is that we are like computers, that human beings are like computers. And the other myth is that by doing one hour of extra work and sacrificing one hour of sleep, that we can be more productive. And these are both huge myths. I mean, point one, we're not like computers. Um, computers can be always on. We can't. Um, you know, computers can run multiple programs at one time. Uh, we can't multitask. You know, you can talk whatever you like about men and women, but the experiments show that when it comes to cognitive tasks, you cannot multitask if you want to do those tasks at the same quality or speed. You can do one cognitive task at the same time as doing one non-cognitive task. So, for example, I can talk to you while walking around the room, but the walking around the room is not a cognitive task. So I'm not multitasking in a cognitive sense. So we're not like computers. Human beings, we need to pulse. You know, I need to sleep every night in order to be able to perform the next day. Um, and there are lots of other ways in which I need to recover my energy. Um, there's a great blog by Tony Schwartz. He talks about manage your energy, not your time. And so it's through recognizing that we pulse and we need to recover our energy uh, that we can really go for that, that higher performance and productivity. Yeah, and that's something that I wanted to touch upon as well, the importance of recovery. And you mentioned it earlier as well. There's some entrepreneurs out there and there's this kind of misconception that no sleep or the less sleep, the better, you know, make use of every minute of the day. That's how you get ahead of the competition, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a number of people peddling this idea. How important is it to rest your mind so that you can be more productive? Absolutely critical. I mean, famously, Elon Musk got one hour of sleep per night in his early startup days and slept under his desk. Uh, maybe he's a better man than me. I'm sure he is in many ways. Um, but you know, that really does fly against the copious amounts of peer-reviewed and academic studies on sleep and the relationship of that to our cognitive, physical performance, emotionally as well. Um, and, and separate to that point, we're also back to questions of soul and 
what really matters to somebody. And, and I use soul not in a religious sense at all. We all have a sense of, of meaning, of purpose. And I find with startup executives that I coach, and also I was one myself with Coachify, um, it's very tempting to be on that treadmill. And it's perfectly natural. You want to succeed. Uh, and in the early days, maybe you're funding it yourself. And then the moment you start getting external funding, I mean, there's a treadmill that's just getting faster and faster just to break even. You've got a certain number of months of runway. There's so many diff- business functions that you have to operate across and you never have enough resource, it feels. So it's a tough gig being a startup entrepreneur. And so with, with a desire to be successful and, and maybe an attachment of my self-worth to the success of the enterprise, then you can want to push more and more and more. Uh, and I certainly found in my Coachify years that I did not step back enough and ask the question, um, what's most important to me? Uh, what matters most at this time? And I found actually, you know, for me, it was a two-year journey. I mean, it reminded me, there's a quote by uh, Phil Cosino who said that um, we, uh, we can often have a, a transformative journey to a sacred center. And I felt that was going on for me because only through after a long journey through what felt like quite alien lands for me did I arrive at an insight actually you know the company had pivoted into being a data company and initially it was a coaching company and I realized eventually I didn't want to lead that kind of company and I, I then returned to my coaching and leadership consulting and helping others flourish and I returned home as if it were for the first time and that felt like a very soulful moment for me but for whatever reason, I couldn't access that in the busyness of startup land. So that's what I help others to try to do. That's very interesting. It reminds me of a quote from Tony Robbins that stuck with me for a very long time. And he says, one of the biggest failures in life, um, he feels, is reaching success without fulfillment. So reaching personal goals, material goals, or whatever they are, but not being happy and feeling kind of a bit empty inside. And have you seen that? Is that something that in your coaching work you've also seen? Yes, a lot. Uh, No matter how high up someone goes on that ladder, um, there are very often the questions, what do I really want in life? Often I'm speaking with people and coaching people who are realizing they haven't seen their children enough. Um, There was the well-publicized a story a couple of years ago, the executive, uh, quite a senior executive who resigned. Uh, and the reason he gave for his resignation, he showed his colleagues a letter that his nine-year-old daughter had written to him a couple of weeks earlier. And in the letter, all it had was a list of events in her life that her dad had not been present at, such as the nativity play, this performance, that performance. And it was just the list. And it was enough for him to realize, hang on, I need to prioritize And I know another colleague who's very senior in the business world who did actually retire early and his colleagues thought he was crazy. But the reason he did it was his daughter, who was about 13 years old, you know, she only had five or so years left at home before she got off to college. He wanted to spend time with her. So these are courageous decisions to take. And yeah, I mean, see it all the time. And where do you feel that this stems from? Is it a deep-rooted problem, shall we say, in society that from a young age, uh, maybe it's parenting has to do with it or, or schooling or society? Where do you think that this notion of to be happy, you need to be, you know, have a six-figure paycheck, you need to drive the nicest cars, go on the best holidays, etc.? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, our human nature is complex. I, I think that we are we are delightful and wonderful and 
biased sometimes against what is good for us. So there's this sort of wonderfully complex mix of light and dark in us. I think that culture and society plays a massive role, that the quality of thinking that we often do about our own lives, about our family, about our work, is often impoverished. Um, I see many in organisations, understandably, and I've been one of them, where superficial thinking abounds. And uh, I'm a real advocate of the work of the American coach, Nancy Klein, author of the book More Time to Think, because she talks about how uh, we can become sophisticated victims in our organisations, thinking alike in order to progress. And that organisations can actually become led by people who are essentially they've been thinking what they thought their boss or their shareholders wanted them to think in order to get things right. And so we have this um, contagion, if you like, of thinking like other people or doing derivative thinking or superficial thinking rather than thinking for myself as myself. And so I think one of the most important things we do, we, we can do, is create environments for ourselves, ourselves and others where we can do our finest independent thinking, you know, where I can think as myself. Uh, and on this podcast, for example, I can't do your thinking better than you can do your thinking. But sometimes in a meeting, you know, what, one of the worst things of our culture is interruption. We cut across each other. And when I do that, it's almost like I'm saying to you that it's fine. You know, I know what you are about to say in the future, and I'm going to finish your thought for you because you can't do it yourself. Um, as if I'm some godlike figure that can know where you were going to develop your own thinking. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting topic. Um, I can't remember who said it or where I heard it, but it's something along the lines of most of the time, you know, people, when they listen, they are listening with the intention of speaking, not with the intention of listening <laughs> to the other person. And I've seen it, personally, I've seen it uh, firsthand in board meetings where rather than just taking note and really paying attention to what your colleague is saying, as you say, you're waiting for that moment where they can interject with their own view have you seen that much in management meetings i'm sure it goes on all the time yes uh, all the time yeah and it, the difference uh, you've put your finger on it there it's yeah we're we're often listening to reply rather than listening to ignite thinking in someone else and without the right help or inspiration um yeah i, I see the right sort of behaviors and ways of being rarely and there are some cult companies who are taking this sort of culture on and you can see it really changing the quality of dialogue. And what it means is they get better things done faster. So have you ever been in a meeting where two or three people are hogging the conversation and they're basically, you realize 20 minutes later that they're basically all saying the same thing in terms of individually, not that they're agreeing with each other, but person A is saying what person A has been saying and he's repeated it three times. Person B has done the same on her topic. And, and so you're just wasting time and everyone's get, getting heated. Whereas if there's this fascination with where the other person will go next with their thinking, then, you know, I then feel heard. I can actually develop my thoughts to a higher quality. And so you do find yeah, things getting done in a more productive way as well. I've seen the biggest power games played in boardrooms of all places. And it's really interesting. You learn a lot about the human psyche. Um, this short attention span that, you know, we have, and I'm seeing it more and more with the, um, with the younger generation. I mean, I'm guilty of it myself, where there's so much distraction as you wake up and there's emails, you know, social media, um, 
messages, WhatsApp, you know, pulled from pillar to post? And do you think that, yes, on one hand, technology has advanced our kind of the way of living and living standards, etc. But on the other hand, if not channeled or used correctly, it can actually become a bit of a disaster. Yes. And it's the channeling word that I would really underline in terms of what I'm agreeing with here. Um, we can channel it well. I'm, I'm an optimist about technology, but also a realist. Um, so, I mean, a couple of power games that, that I've seen uh, in these sorts of contexts are firstly tailgating. Uh, people will often listen in a, in a way that they're just waiting for that nanosecond when someone else has finished speaking and then they realize then they're in. And it's obvious to everyone else that the person hasn't been listening at all. And the other power game I heard once, which um, <laughs> which brought a smile to my face, is someone actually interrupted another person and said, let me finish the thought that you were about to have. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Basically, you're saying what you want to say. So technology can make this worse because on something like Zoom, and maybe not everybody has great internet connection, you're not sure how engaged people are, it's harder to generate that quality of attention but you can do it. And with the, I suppose it's partly about being explicit and people learning a bit more about what the norms are. What, what are the cultural norms we want to share? You know, uh, is this meeting really about everybody thinking for themselves about the budget? Or is it a download of information from me to you about the budget? Both are fine, but let's say which it is. And if the leader in any given scenario genuinely wants engagement and motivation and people to contribute the best of themselves, then I would argue they, sh they need to accept that what they want to do is create a thinking environment for other people. And doing that takes courage. Initially, it takes a bit of time, but boy, does it get you further. So kind of touching upon the current climate and kind of what's going on in everyone's lives right now with this pandemic and lockdown where you know nobody knows how long this is going to take and but also on the other side when we do recover what damages has this lockdown done to kind of the wider economy etc um for people out there who are working from home i'm sure most of them by now may have got into some sort of daily routine that works for them but for those who have been furloughed or unfortunately have been laid off and lost their jobs what advice would you give to them to how to best utilize this time where suddenly they've got a routine, they're waking up at a certain time, coming home at a certain time, going to the gym, and now they're waking up with no sense of, I don't know, purpose or real motivation to do anything, really? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And I think um, people, different groups of people are understandably, well, they're in different situations as regards the pandemic. You know, some who are uh, employed and on overdrive um, others who may be furloughed and unsure as to whether their job is going to exist in a month's time or six months' time and also not having any professional work to do. Others who uh, may be studying. or you know, So people are in different situations. People are responding differently. I think a lot of the advice that's out there is, is great. We're seeing a lot of stuff around mental health, around exercise, around emotions. Um, so um, in terms of the question you asked, I think the most helpful thing is something that I tried actually a couple of years ago. This was as I was coming through the Coachify experience and I wanted to do something a bit different. And I'd, I'd encourage people to use some of the time uh, to reflect on their own life in terms of where they're at and um, who they are uh, as a way of informing what they might then do in the future. Because I find that no amount of tapping into that is, is really wasted. And what I did, and it was an exercise that 
um, I derived from a book written by Parker J. Palmer. And it's an awesome book. It's very short, which in my mind, most of the awesome books I've read in my life are very short. Uh, so this one is called Let Your Life Speak. And it's not presented as an exercise in the book, but I sort of derived it from a few of the pages he wrote. Um, and what I did was I sat down and uh, made a list of all the um, upsets I had had in my life. And when I started the list, I thought, oh, there'll just be three or four, because frankly, I've not had a, a life that's been very filled with tragedy. But then as I made the list, then more thoughts came to mind. I had this quite a long list of upsets. And then for each one, Parker Palmer was uh, encouraging readers to think about, in that moment of upset, what from your true self shone through and what from your false self shone through. So sometimes when an upset happens in life, which could be losing your job or not passing an exam, or it could be this very crisis, sometimes we respond in the best way. We know that something of our true self, of our magnificence is coming through. So you write that down, just the bullet point. Or at other times, actually our ego or our fear really comes through and we, we act in a way we think, you know, that wasn't really me at my best. So I made this long list and it took a while, you know, an hour or two of real reflective journaling. And then I started to look at what I'd written about my true and false self and make categories and reflect on that even further and think, okay. And eventually I came up with a sort of some statements of who am I really? Um, and for me, what I wrote, this is a couple of years ago, I wrote that I'm an artesian spring for others. I draw from deep wells of learning and co courageously create thinking oases. So that was just some words that were significant for me, but it helped me get back into my coaching and leadership work with a new vigor. So I think with some reflection built in, if people feel they can do it, they might actually uh, either return to what they were doing or take a new direction in life that to them feels more significant and may serve others better. Great. That's a great message. And talk to us you, about Artesian. You mentioned there. What are you working on at the moment? Well, uh, actually, I just uh, got off a call with a colleague in the Far East and one in the UK uh, about Labyrinth, which is a uh, wonderful uh, product that we have. Uh, it's, it's a meditative walk. Um, so there are labyrinths that exist all around the world in fields, in cathedrals, in, it's not linked to any one religion. Um, and it's, it's a reflective walk where you, you get to think about who are you, where have you come from, what are you really fighting for in life? And so it's in the domain of spiritual intelligence. We've had about 7,000 business leaders walk our labyrinths globally in the last seven or eight years. So we're thinking about uh, taking that virtual, not as a replacement for the in-person, but um, you know, it, the realities of the present time. Um, so we're working on that and also working on uh, putting on sort of one-day programs and three-day programs around creating these thinking environments I was talking about earlier. Um, so there's a, a one-day program we run on transforming meetings, and the three-day one is, is really the one-to-one -one work. Um, so this is all very small group stuff, and we've run it on Zoom already, uh, and people are finding it delightful. I think the reason for that is that uh, many Zoom meetings we can have are life-sucking, whereas when you uh, cultivate a real fascination, a wild delightful fascination with what the other person is saying and will say next it's very life-giving um so that's what our clients are finding right now all right fantastic and where can our listeners who are interested to learn more get in touch with you find out about the kind of the webinars that you're doing oh yes well for that the uh, best place to go is nickchatterath.com 
And that's it, guys. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Dr. Nick Chatrat. If you would like to learn more about the art of leadership and its many facets, get yourself a copy of Musings on Leadership and reach out to Nick directly if you're interested to learn more about his virtual workshop. Thank you all for listening. There are many more great guests that will be joining us here on the Maverick on Air, so stay tuned. If you're enjoying the content, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on either Spotify or iTunes. Your support would be greatly appreciated. Until next time, take care. Thank you.